Okay, so one more reminder. As I'm reading, you are watching for characterization, indirect and direct, and you are listening for an illusion. Got it? We are at the beginning of chapter five. So page 61 in your book. Have your post-it notes ready to go. And here I go. Rip. I grit my teeth as Vinia, a woman with aqua hair and gold tattoos above her eyebrows, yanks a strip of fabric from my leg, tearing out the hair beneath it. Sorry, she pipes in her silly capital accent. You're just so hairy. Why do these people speak in such a high pitch? Why do their jaws barely open when they talk? Why do the ends of their sentences go up as if they're asking questions? Odd vowels, clipped words, and always a hiss on the letter S? No wonder it's impossible not to mimic them. Vinia makes what is supposed to be a sympathetic face. Good news, though. This is the last one. Ready? I get a grip on the edge of the table I'm seated on and nod. The final swath of my hair, leg hair is uprooted in a painful jerk. I've been in the remake center for more than three hours, and I still haven't met my stylist. Apparently, he has no interest in seeing me until Vinia and the other members of my prep team have addressed some obvious problems. This has included scrubbing down my body with a gritty foam that has removed not only dirt, but at least three layers of skin, turning my nails into uniform shapes and primarily ridding my body of hair. My legs, arms, torso, underarms, and parts of my eyebrows have been stripped of the stuff, leaving me like a plucked bird ready for roasting. I don't like it. My skin feels sore and tingly and intensely vulnerable but I have kept my side of the bargain with Hamish, and no objection has crossed my lips. You're doing very well, says some guy named Flavius. He gives his orange corkscrew locks a shake and applies a fresh coat of purple lipstick to his mouth. If there's one thing we can't stand, it's a whiner. Grease her down. Vinia and Octavia, a plump woman whose entire body has been dyed a pale shade of pea green, rub me down with a lotion that first stings but then soothes my raw skin. Then they pull me from the table, removing the thin robe I've been allowed to wear off and on. I stand there completely naked as the three circle me, wielding tweezers to remove any last bits of hair. I know I should be embarrassed, but they're so unlike people that I'm no more self-conscious than if a trio of oddly colored birds were pecking around my feet. The three step back and admire their work. Excellent. You almost look like a human being now, says Flavius, and they all laugh. I force my lips up into a smile and show how grateful I am. Thank you, I say sweetly. We don't have much cause to look nice in District 12. This wins them over completely. Of course you don't, you poor dar darling, says Octavia, clasping her hands together in distress for me. But don't worry, says Vinia. By the time Cinna is through with you, you're going to be absolutely gorgeous. We promise. You know, now that we've gotten rid of all the hair and filth, you're not horrible at all, says Flavius encouragingly. Let's call Cinna. They dart out of the room. It's hard to hate my prep team. They're such total idiots. And yet, in an odd way, I know they're sincerely trying to help me. Did they actually give her a single compliment there? Or were they basically all insults? They were basically insults, correctly? Correct? But do they think they are? No, they think they're completely giving her compliments. Okay? I look at the cold white walls and floor and resist the impulse to retrieve my robe. But this Cinna, my stylist, will surely make me remove it at once. Instead, my hands go to my hairdo, the one area of my body my prep team has been told to leave alone.
My fingers stroked the silky braids my mother so carefully arranged. My mother. I left her blue dress and shoes on the floor of my train car, never thinking about retrieving them, of trying to hold on to a piece of her at, of home. Now I wish I had. The door opens and a young man who must be Cinna enters. I'm taken aback by how normal he looks. Most of the stylists they interview on television are so dyed, stenciled, and surgically altered they're grotesque. But Cinna's close-cropped hair appears to be its natural shade of brown. He's in a simple black shirt and pants. The only concession to self-alteration seems to be metallic gold eyeliner that has been applied with a light hand. It brings out the flecks of gold in his green eyes. And despite my disgust with the capital in their hideous fashion, I can't help thinking how attractive he looks. Hello, Katniss. I'm Cinna, your stylist, he says in a quiet voice, somewhat lacking the capital's affectations. Hello, I venture cautiously. Just give me a moment, all right, he asks. He walks around my naked body, not touching me, but taking in every inch of it with his eyes. I resist the impulse to cross my arms over my chest. Who did your hair? My mother, I say. It's beautiful, classic really, and in almost perfect balance with your profile. She has very clever fingers, he says. I had expected someone flamboyant, someone older trying desperately to look young, someone who viewed me as a piece of meat to be prepared for a platter. Sina has met none of these expectations. You're new, aren't you? I don't think I've seen you before, I say. Most of the stylists are familiar, constants in the ever-changing pool of tributes. Some have been around my whole life. Yes. This is my first year in the game, says Senna. So they gave you District 12, I say. Newcomers generally end up with us, the least desirable district. I asked for District 12, he says without further explanation. Why don't you put on your robe and we'll have a chat. Pulling on my robe, I follow him through a door into a sitting room. The two red couches face off over a low table. Three walls are blank. The fourth is entirely glass, providing a window to the city. I can see by the light that it must be around noon, although the sunny sky has turned overcast. Cinna invites me to sit on one of the couches and takes his place across from me. He presses a button on the side of the table. The top splits and from below rises a second tabletop and ho that holds our lunch. Chicken and chunks of oranges cooked in a creamy sauce laid on a bed of pearly white grain, tiny green peas and onions, rolls shaped like flowers, and for dessert, a pudding the color of honey. What else did I tell you guys to keep an eye on? Food. Do you guys see how easily that happened? How did Senna get this food to appear? Elizabeth? He pushed a button and food appeared. Isn't that, wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. Of course, at the same time, like, isn't there days like you just, you just have a taste for something? Yeah. And what if that's not what appears? I always thought of that. What if I don't want what they just presented with me, presented to me? Right. It would not matter to Katniss, right? But what about someone like Cinna who lives in the capital? I wonder how that would work. Just wondering. Just, you know, thoughts going through my head. Oh, that would be absolutely awful. I, maybe they do have like... They throw out like a thing of survey of things they like, <laughs> and then they sporadically give it to them. Who knows? Yeah, that would be bad. I don't think I want anything reading my mind. I try to imagine assembling this meal myself back home. Chicken is ch chickens are too expensive, but I could make do with a wild turkey. 
I need to shoot a second turkey to trade for an orange. Goat's milk would have to substitute for cream. We can grow peas in the garden. I'd have to get wild onions from the woods. I don't recognize the grain. Our own tesserae ration cooks down to an unattractive brown mush. Fancy rolls would mean another trade with the baker, perhaps for two or three squirrels. As for the pudding, I can't even guess what's in it. Days of hunting and gathering for this one meal, and even then it would be a poor substitution for the capital version. What must it be like, I wonder, to live in a world where food appears at the press of a button? How would I spend the hours I now commit to combing the woods for sustenance if it were so easy to come by? What do they do all day, these people in the capital, besides decorating their bodies and waiting around for a new shipment of tributes to roll in and die for their entertainment? I look up and find Sinna's eyes trained on mine. How despicable we must seem to you, he says. Had he seen this in my face or somehow read my thoughts? He's right, though. The whole rotten lot of them is despicable. No matter, says Sinna. So, Katniss, about your costume for the opening ceremonies. My partner, Portia, is a stylist for your fellow tribute, Peta. And our current thought is to dress you in complimentary costumes, says Sinna. As you know, it's customary to reflect the flavor of the district. Okay, so just so you guys know, we're probably going to be doing a reaping tomorrow. Who's left? Who has not been reaped yet? Okay, just to let you know, if you haven't been reaped yet, you know what your job's going to be? Kylie? Sponsor. Nope. Stylist. You are their stylist. Okay, so you need to pay attention to the kinds of stuff the stylist does. So the stylist obviously has to come up with a costume for the opening ceremony. And do you see what it says? It's customary to reflect the flavor of the district. Okay, so something to do with, does anybody remember? What is District 12's thing? Willa? Kylie? Coal. Okay. For the opening ceremonies, you're supposed to wear something that suggests your district's principal industry. Hey, you guys, remember that page that I had you guys mark that had like all the districts down the side? Okay. One of the things it asks down the side is its industry, correct? We're going to get a couple of the district's industries right here. So you might want to flip to that in your workbook real quick or at least mark this page so you can go back to it. Okay? I don't know. I told you guys to mark it for a reason. It was pretty far back in the workbook. Did we not mark it? Okay, well, we might want to do that. It's... Page 44, how about we put a post-it note sticking out so we can easily find page 44 again, okay, guys? Or dog ear it or do something. Okay, so here we go. District 11, agriculture. District 4, fishing. District 3, factories. This means that coming from District 12, Peter and I will be in some kind of coal miners getup. Since the baggy miners jumpsuits are not particularly becoming, our tributes usually end up in skimpy outfits. Lost my spot. And hats with headlamps. One year, 
Our tributes were stark naked and covered in black powder to represent coal dust. It's always dreadful and does nothing to win favor with the crowd. I prepare myself for the worst. So I'll be in a coal miner outfit? I ask, hoping it won't be indecent. Not exactly. You see, Porsche and I think that coal miner thing's very overdone. No one will remember you in that. And we both see it as our job to make District 12 tributes unforgettable. So stylists, that's your job. You are to make your tributes unforgettable. Okay? Says Sinna. I'll be naked for sure, I think. So rather than focus on the coal mining itself, we're going to focus on the coal, says Sinna, naked and covered in black dust, I think. And what do we do with coal? We burn it, says Sinna. You're not afraid of fire, are you, Katniss? He sees my expression and grins. A few hours later, I am dressed in what will either be the most sensational or deadliest costume in the opening ceremonies. I'm in a simple black unitard that covers me from ankle to neck. Shiny leather boots laced up to my knees, but it's the fluttering cape made of streams of orange, yellow, and red and the matching headpiece that define this costume. Cinna plans to light them on fire just before her chariot rolls into the streets. It's not real flame, of course, just a little synthetic fire Portia and I came up with. You'll be perfectly safe, he says. But I'm not convinced I won't be perfectly barbecued by the time we reach the, the city center. My face is relatively clear of makeup, just a bit of highlighting here and there. My hair has been brushed out and then braided down my back in my usual style. I want the audience to recognize you when you're in the arena, says Sina dreamily. Katniss, the girl who was on fire. It crosses my mind that Sinna's calm and normal demeanor masks a complete madman. Despite the morning's revelation about Peta's character, I'm actually relieved when he shows up dressed in the identical costume. He should know about fire, being a baker's son and all. His stylist Portia and her team accompany him, and everyone is absolutely giddy with excitement over what a splash will make, except Sinna. He just seems a bit weary as he accepts congratulations. We're whisked down to the bottom level. We are whisked down to the bottom level of the remake center, which is essentially a gigantic stable. The opening ceremonies are about to start. Hey, you guys need to mark this because I am going to ask you to draw a picture of the opening ceremonies. So you probably need to mark where these ceremonies are happening so you can draw me a picture, okay? Pairs of tributes are being loaded into chariots pulled by teams of four horses. Ours are coal black. The animals are so well trained, no one even needs to guide their reins. Cinna and Portia direct us into the chariot and carefully arrange our body positions, the drape of our capes, before moving off to consult with each other. What do you think, I whisper to Peta, about the fire? I'll rip off your cape if you'll rip off mine, he says, through gritted teeth. Deal, I say. Maybe if we can get them off soon enough, we'll avoid the worst burns. It's bad, though. They'll throw us into the arena no matter what condition we're in. I know we promised Hamish we'd do exactly what they said, but I don't think he considered this angle. Where is Hamish anyway? Isn't he supposed to be protect us from this sort of thing? Says Peta. With all that alcohol in him, it's probably not advisable for him to for to have him around any open flame. What happens when alcohol comes in contact with with fire? Aspen. It's like, it's it burns, right? <laughs> 
Yeah. So Hamish, with all the alcohol he drinks, they're making a joke here, right? Okay, they're basically saying with all that alcohol in him, if he gets close to an open flame, what could happen to him? Elizabeth? He'd get burned, right? Would he? No. no. What are they using here? What is this an example of? Willa thinks she's... Let's see, Willa. Not quite. What do you think, Kaden? No. Not quite. It's something that doctor, or not, not, not doctor, what Mr. Fuller uses all the time. Like he's always, Miss Polka is this also. <laughs> Kylie? Sarcastic. They're being very sarcastic. Hey, another word for sarcasm is verbal irony. Just throwing that out there for you guys. <laughs> what? I have a new shirt. Verbal irony is how I hug. It's how I hug, yes. And suddenly we're both laughing. I guess we're both so nervous about the games and more pressingly petrified of being turned into human torches. We're not acting sensibly. The opening music begins. It's easy to hear blasted around the Capitol. Massive doors slide open, revealing the crowd-lined streets. The ride lasts about 20 minutes and ends up at the city circle, where they will welcome us. Play the anthem, escort us into the training center, which will be our home slash prison until the games begin. The tributes from District 1 ride out in a chariot pulled by snow-white horses. They look so beautiful, spray-painted silver, it taste, in tasteful tunics, glittering with jewels. District 1 makes, so this is their industry, luxury items for the capital. Luxury items is what District 1 does. You can hear the roar of the crowd. They're always favorites. District 2 gets into position to follow them. In no time at all, we are approaching the door. I can see that between the overcast sky and evening hour, the light is turning gray. The tributes from District 11 are just rolling out when Sina appears with a lighted torch. Here we go, then, he says. And before we can react, he sets our capes on fire. I gasp, waiting for the heat, but there is only a faint tinkling, tickling sensation. Sina climbs up before us and ignites our headdresses. He lets out a sigh of relief. It works. Then he gently tucks a hand under my chin. Remember, heads high, smiles. They're going to love you. Sina jumps off the chariot and has one last idea. He shouts something up at us, but the music drowns him out. He shouts again and gestures. What's he saying, I ask Peta. For the first time, I look at him and realize that ablaze with the fake flames, he is dazzling, and I must be too. I think he said for us to hold hands, says Peta. He grabs my right hand in his left, and we look to Sina for confirmation. He nods and gives a thumbs up, and that's the last thing I see before we enter the city. I'm actually going to stop there because the bell is going to be ringing. After lunch, I will continue to read. So hurry back, please, you, can, you guys. Yep, nope. Page 70. It looks like it, yeah, it's got a line through the zero. Oh. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. No bowls. Oh. Do you want me to tape it? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Because we didn't know if we should tape it.
Okay. The crowd's initial alarm at our appearance, we're on page 70. At our appearance quickly changes to cheers and shouts of District 12. Every head is turning our way, pulling the focus from the three chariots ahead of us. At first, I'm frozen, but then I catch sight of us on a large television screen and I'm floored by how breathtaking we look. In the deepening twilight, the firelight illuminates our faces. We seem to be leaving a trail of fire off the flowing capes. Sinna was right about the minimal makeup. We both look more attractive, but utterly recognizable. Remember, heads high, smiles. They're going to love you. I hear Sinna's voice in my head. I lift my chin a bit higher, put on my most winning smile, and wave with my free hand. I'm glad now I have Peter to clutch for balance. He's so steady, solid as a rock. As I gain confidence, I actually blow a few kisses to the crowd. The people of the capital are going nuts, showering us with flowers, shouting our names, our first names, which they have bothered to find on the program. The pounding music, the cheers, the admiration work their, wait, work their way into my blood, and I can't suppress my excitement. Cinna has given me a great advantage. No one will forget me. Not my look, not my name. Katniss, the girl who was on fire. For the first time, I feel a flicker of hope rising up in me. Surely there must be one sponsor willing to take me on. And with a little extra help, some food, the right weapon, why should I count myself out of the games? Someone throws me a red rose. I catch it, give it a delicate sniff, and blow a kiss back in the general direction of the giver. A hundred hands reach up to catch my kiss as if it were a real and tangible thing. Katniss! Katniss, I can hear my name being called from all sides. Everyone wants my kisses. It's not until we enter the city circle that I realize I must have completely stopped the circulation in Peta's hand. That's how tightly I've been holding it. I look down at our fing linked fingers as I loosen my grasp, but he regains his grip on me. No, don't let go of me, he says. The firelight flickers off his blue eyes. Please, I might fall out of this thing. Okay, I say. So I keep holding on, but I can't help feeling strange about the way Cinna has linked us together. It's not really fair to present us as a team and then lock us into the arena to kill each other. The 12 chariots fill the loop of the city circle. On the buildings that surround the circle, every window is packed with the most prestigious citizens of the capital. Our horses pull our chariots right up to President Snow, Snow's mansion, and we come to a halt. The music ends with a flourish. The president, a small, thin man with paper-white hair, gives the official welcome from a balcony above us. It is a traditional to cut away to the faces of the tributes during the speech, but I can see on the screen that we get way more than our share of airtime. The darker it becomes, the more difficult it is to take your eyes off our flickering. When the national anthem plays, they do make an effort to do a quick cut around to each pair of tributes, but the camera holds on District 12 Chariot as it parades around the, center, the circle one final time and disappears into the training center. The doors have only just shut behind us when we're engulfed by the prep teams, who are nearly unintelligible as, the, as they babble out praise. As I glance around, I notice a lot of the other tributes are shooting us dirty looks, which confirms what I've suspected. We've literally outshone them all. Then Sinna and Portia are there, helping us down from the chariot, carefully removing our flaming capes and headdresses. Portia extinguishes them with some kind of spray from a canister. I realize that I'm still glued to Peta and force my stiff fingers to open. We both massage our hands. Thanks for keeping a hold of me. I was getting a little shaky out there. Says Peta. It didn't show, I tell him. I'm sure no one noticed. 
I'm sure they didn't notice anything but you. You should wear flames more often, he says. They suit you. And then he gives me a smile that seems so genuinely sweet with just the right touch of shyness that unexpected warmth rushes through me. A warning bell goes off in my head. Don't be so stupid. Peter is planning how to kill you, I remind myself. He is luring you in to make you easy prey. The more likable he is, the more deadly he is. But because two can play at this game, I stand on tiptoe and kiss his cheek right on his bruise. Okay, are you guys ready for the training center? Okay, tomorrow we will reap our stylists. Got it? Aspen's extremely excited about being a stylist. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're my stylists again. I should, shouldn't I have four? Elizabeth, are you, are you a stylist? No, Quinn's not. Oh, Quinn's a stylist? <laughs> oh. I bet he'll come up with an excellent costume for whichever tribute he ends up with. No, the tributes have all been chosen. The only thing we haven't reaped is stylists. Yep, got to see who the stylists are. The training center has a tower designed exclusively for, for the tributes and their teams. This will be our home until the actual games begin. Just a minute, I want to see where. Okay. In exclusively, blah, 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 blah. this will be our home until the actual games begin. Each district has an entire floor. You simply step onto an elevator and press the number of your district. Easy enough to remember. I've ridden the elevator a couple of times in the Justice Building back in District 12, once to receive the medal for my father's death, and then yesterday to say my final goodbyes to my friends and family. But that's a dark, creaky thing that moves like a snail and smells of sour milk. The walls of this elevator are made of crystal so that you can watch the people on the ground floor shrink to ants as you shoot up into the air. It's exhilarating, and I'm tempted to ask Effie Trinket if we can ride it again, but somehow that seems childish. Apparently, Epi Trinket's duties did not conclude at the station. Raise your hand if you are an escort. You need to be paying attention to your guys' job, okay? So Effie's job did not end once she got him there, okay? So pay attention. It was just you two, right? There's only two escorts. Yeah. She and Hamish will be overseeing us right into the arena. In a way, that's a plus, because at least she can be counted on to corral us around to places on time, whereas we haven't seen Hamish since he agreed to help us on the train. Probably passed out somewhere. Every trinket, on the other hand, seems to be flying high. We're the first team she's ever chaperoned that made a splash at the opening ceremonies. She's complimentary about not just our costumes, but how we conducted ourselves. And to hear her tell it, Effie knows everyone who's anyone in the capital, and she's been talking us up all day trying to win us sponsors. I've been very mysterious, though, she says, her eyes squint half shut, because, of course, Hamish hasn't bothered to tell me your strategies. But I've done my best with what I had to work with, how Katniss sacrificed herself for her sister, how you've both successfully struggled to overcome the barbarism of your district. Barbarism? That's ironic coming from a woman helping to prepare us for slaughter. That's what she, what she, And what's she basing our success on? Our table manners? Everyone has their reservations, naturally, you being from the coal district. But I said, and this was very clever of me, I said, well, if you put enough pressure on coal, it turns to pearls. Effie beams at us brilliantly that we have no choice but to respond enthusiastically to her cleverness, even though it's wrong. Coal? 
doesn't turn to pearls. They grow in shellfish. Possibly she meant coal turns to diamonds, but that's still untrue. I've heard that some of the some sort of machine in District 1 that they can turn graphite into diamonds, but we don't mine graphite in District 12. That was part of District 13's job. So where is that going again? What page? 44. Page 44. I did ask you for District 13's industry, graphite. Well, the only other thing that we know about them is what? Willa? They've been destroyed. I wonder if the people she's been plugging us to all day either know or care. Unfortunately, I can't seal the sponsor deals for you. Only Hamish can do that, says Effie grimly. But don't worry. I'll get him to the table at gunpoint if necessary. Although lacking in many departments, Effie Trinket has a certain determination I have to admire. My quarters are larger than our entire house back home. They are plush like the train car, but also have so many automatic gadgets that I'm sure I won't have time to press all the buttons. The shower alone has a panel with more than 100 options you can choose, regulating water temperature, pressure, soap, shampoo, scents, oils, and massaging sponges. Can you imagine that? Push a button and a sponge comes flying out and it like massages like your back while you're showering? I don't yeah. yeah. I take showers. I think yeah. that's not cool. It is cool. Yeah. That'd be kind of weird, yeah. though. Like, so yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, you know, like, like a hand, like in the wood. <laughs> 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 hand darting out. Yeah, the hand darting out would be a little weird. When you step out on a mat, he, oh, look at this. Look at this cool thing. When you step out onto a mat, heaters come on that blow dry your body. Instead of struggling with the knots in my wet hair, I merely place my hand on a box that sends a current through my scalp, untangling, parting, and drying my hair almost instantly. Oh man, I spend like 15 minutes blow drying my hair. Takes forever. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, it would. Yeah. Okay. It floats down around my shoulders in a glossy curtain. I program the closet for an outfit to my taste. The windows zoom in and out on parts of the city at my command. You only whisper a type of food from a gigantic menu into a mouthpiece and it appears hot and steamy before you in less than a minute. Yeah, look at that. I walk around the room eating goose liver and puffy bread until there's a knock on the door. Effie's calling me to dinner. Good, I'm starving. Pita, Sina, and Portia are standing out on a balcony that overlooks the Capitol when we enter the dining room. I'm glad to see the stylist, particularly after I hear that Hamish will be joining us. A meal presided over by I lost the word. A meal presided over by just Effie and Hamish is bound to be a disaster. Besides, dinner isn't really about food, it's about planning out our strategies. And Sina and Portia have already proven how valuable they are. A silent young man dressed in a white tunic offers us all stemmed glasses of wine. I think about turning it down, but I've never had wine, except that the homemade stuff my mother uses for coughs. And when will I get a chance to try it again? I take a sip of the tart, dry liquid and secretly think it could be improved with a few spoonfuls of honey. Hamet shows up just as dinner is being served. It looks as if he's had his own stylist because he's clean and groomed and about as sober as I've ever seen him. He doesn't refuse the offer of wine, and when he starts in on a soup, I realize it's the first time I've ever seen him eat. Maybe he really will pull himself together long enough to help us. Sina and Portia seem to have a civilizing effect on Hamish and Effie. 
At least they're addressing each other decently, and they both have nothing but praise for our stylist's opening act. While they make small talk, I concentrate on the meal. Mushroom soup, bitter greens with tomatoes the size of peas, rare roast beef sliced as thin as paper, noodles in a green sauce, cheese that melts on your tongue served with sweet blue grapes. The servers, all young people dressed in white tunics, like the one who gave us wine, move wordlessly to and from the table, keeping the platters and glasses full. About halfway through my glass of wine, my head starts feeling foggy, so I change to water instead. I don't like the feeling, and I hope it wears off soon. How Hamish can stand walking around like this full time is a mystery. I try to focus on the talk, which has turned to our interview costumes, when a girl sets a gorgeous-looking cake on the table and deftly lights it. It blazes up and the flames flicker around the edge a while while it finally goes out. I have a moment of doubt. What makes it burn? Is it alcohol? I say looking up at the girl. That's the last thing I wa- Oh, I know you. I can't place a name or time to the girl's face, but I'm certain of it. The dark red hair, the striking features, the porcelain white skin. But even as I utter the words, I feel my insides contracting with anxiety and guilt at the sight of her. And while I can't pull it up, I know some bad memory is associated with her. The expression of wait, the, the expression of terror that crosses her face only adds to my confusion and unease. She shakes her head in denial quickly and hurries away from the table. When I look back, the four adults are watching me like hawks. Don't be ridiculous, Katniss. How could you possibly know an Avox? snaps Effie. The very thought. What's an Avox? I ask stupidly. Someone who committed a crime. They cut her tongue so she can't speak, says Hamish. She's probably a traitor of some sort. Not likely you'd know her. And even if you did, you're not to speak to one of them unless it's to give an order, says Effie. Of course you don't really know her. But I do know her. And now that Hamish has mentioned the word traitor, I remember from where. The disapproval is so high I could never admit it. No, I guess not. I just... I stammer, and the wine is not helping. Peta snaps his fingers. Deli Cartwright, that's who it is. I kept thinking she looked familiar as well. Then I realized she's a dead ringer for Deli. Deli Cartwright is a pasty-faced, lumpy girl with yellowish hair who looks about as much like our server as a beetle does a butterfly. She may also be the friendliest person on the planet. She smiles constantly at everyone in school, even me. I have never seen the girl with the red hair smile, but I jump on Peta's suggestion gratefully. Of course that's who I was thinking of. It must be the hair, I say. Something about the eyes, too, says Peta. The energy at the table relaxes. Oh, well, if that's all it is, says Cinna. And yes, the cake has spirits, but all of the alcohol has burned off. I ordered it specially in honor of your fiery debut. We eat the cake and move into a sitting room to watch the replay of the opening ceremonies that's being broadcast. A few of the other couples make nice impression, but none of them can hold a candle to us. Even our own party lets out an ah as they show us coming out of the remake center. Whose idea was the hand-holding? asks Hamish. Cinna, says Portia. Just the perfect touch of rebellion, says Hamish. Very nice. Rebellion? I have to think about that one a moment. But when I remember the other couple standing stiffly apart, never touching or acknowledging each other, as if their fellow tribute did not exist, as if the games had already begun, I know what Hamish means. Presenting ourselves not as adversaries, but as friends, has distinguished us as much as the fiery costumes.
Why would having them hold hands be rebellious? Willa? Does the capital want them getting along? No. no. So the fact that they are presenting themselves as a team is rebellious towards the capital. It's doing the opposite of what the capital wants, right? Tomorrow morning is the first training session. Meet me for breakfast and I'll tell you exactly how I want you to play it, says Hamish to Peter and me. Now go get some sleep while the grown-ups talk. Peter and I walk together down the corridor to our rooms. When we get to my door, he leans against the frame, not blocking my entrance exactly, but insisting I pay attention to him. So, Deli Cartwright. Imagine finding her look-alike here. He's asking for an explanation, and I'm tempted to give him one. We both know he covered for me, so here I am in his debt again. If I tell him the truth about the girl, somehow that might even things up. How can it hurt, really? Even if he repeated the story, it couldn't do me much harm. It was something I witnessed, and he lied as much as I did about Deli Cartwright. I realized I do want to talk to someone about the girl, someone who might be able to help me figure out her story. Gail would be my first choice, but it's unlikely I'll ever see Gail again. I try to think of think if telling PETA could give him any possible advantage over me. You guys, all he wants is a story of this girl. And what is going on in Katniss's brain? Aspen? Yes, she's trying to think of every angle that this could hurt her or help her, right? I mean, that would be good in the game. Yes, but I need you guys to understand that this is the way she works. Once her father died and her mother went into that deep depression, what has she learned not to do, trust, Willa? Trust she does not trust people. So when somebody is trying to help her or somebody does something nice for her, does she immediately, she immediately goes into this, right? What, am, what are they going to get out of this? If I do it this way, what is that going to help me or is that going to help them? What is their angle? What are they trying to do? She immediately goes there, doesn't she? Okay, so I want you guys, what have I said that I want you to really pay attention to? What she thinks. Because there's a lot of stuff she will not say out loud. Okay? I try to think as if telling Peter could give him any possible advantage over me, but I don't see how. Maybe sharing a confidence will actually make him believe I see him as a friend. Besides, the idea of the girl with her maimed tongue frightens me. She has reminded me why I'm here, not to model flashy costumes and eat delicacies, but to die a bloody death while the crowds urge on my killer. To tell or not to tell? You guys recognize that? To tell or not to tell? What's it? Where have you heard something like that before? Do you guys know the line that I'm thinking of? To be or not to be, that is the question. Have you heard that? You just don't know where it's from, right? Yes, it's from a Shakespeare play called Hamlet. Okay, so write that down. That is an allusion right there to Hamlet. Yes, Aspen? We are at to tell or not to tell on page 80. Okay, so that is an allusion to Hamlet. If you've never read Hamlet or heard the phrase to be or not to be, would you catch that? 
No. Is that what I talked about in the illusions yeah. notes? Yeah. Okay. My brain still feels slow from the wine. I stared down the empty corridor as if the decision lies there. Hey, Ms. Fisher, mm -hmm. Zane did not get his notes done last night. He couldn't find the foldables. They're in the no November one, I've been told. Instead of the October, I moved these up. Peta picks up on my hesitation. Have you been on the roof yet? I shake my head. Cinna showed me. You can practically see the whole city. The wind's a bit loud. Oh, the wind's a bit loud, though. I translate this into no one will overhear us talking in my head. You do have the sense that we might be under surveillance here. Can we just go up? Sure, come on, says Peta. I follow him to a flight of stairs that lead to the roof. There's a small dome-shaped room with a door to the outside. As we step into the cool, windy evening air, I catch my breath at the view. The capital twinkles like a vast field of, of fireflies. Electricity in District 12 comes and goes. Usually we only have it a few hours a day. Often the evenings are spent in candlelight. The only time you can count on it is when they're airing the games or some important government message on television that it's mandatory to watch. But here, there would be no shortage, ever. Pete and I walk to a railing at the edge of the roof. I look straight down the side of the building to the street, which is buzzing with people. You can hear their cars, an occasional shout, and a strange metallic tinkling. In District 12, we'd all be thinking about bed right now. I asked Sinna why they let us up here. Weren't they worried that some of the tributes might decide to jump right over the side, says Peta. What'd he say, I ask. You can't, says Peta. He holds out his hand into a seemingly empty space. There's a sharp zap, and he jerks it back. Jerk it, jerks it back. There's some si some kind of electric field throws you back onto the roof. Always worried about our safety, I say. Even though Cinna has shown Peter the roof, I wonder if we're supposed to be up here now, so late and alone. I've never seen tributes on the training center roof before, but that doesn't mean we're not being taped. Do you think they're watching us now? Maybe, he admits. Come see the garden. On the other side of the dome, They've built a garden with flower beds and potted trees. From the branches hang hundreds of wind chimes, which account for the tinkling I heard. Here in the garden on the windy night, it's enough to drown out two people who are trying not to be heard. Peta looks at me expectantly. I pretend to examine a blossom. We were hunting in the woods one day, hide, hidden, waiting for game, I whisper. You and your father? He whispers back. No, my friend Gale. Suddenly, all the birds stopped singing at once except one as if it were giving a warning, a warning call. And then we saw her. I'm sure it was the same girl. A boy was with her. Their clothes were tattered. They had dark circles under their eyes from no sleep. They were running as if their lives depended on it, I say. For a moment, I'm silent, as I remember how the sight of the strange pair, clearly not from District 12, fleeing through the woods immobilized us. Later, we wondered if we could have helped them escape. Perhaps we might have concealed them. If we'd moved quickly, Gail and I were taken by surprise, yes, but we're both hunters. We know how animals look at bay. We knew the pair was in trouble as soon as we saw them, but we only watched. The hovercraft appeared out of nowhere, I continued to PETA. I mean, one moment the sky was empty and the next it was there. It didn't make a sound, but they saw it. A net dropped down on the girl and carried her up fast, so fast like the elevator. They shot some sort of spear through the boy. It was attached to a cable and they hauled him up as well. But I'm certain he was dead. We heard the girl scream once, the boy's name, I think. Then it was gone. The hovercraft vanished into thin air and the birds began to sing again as if nothing had happened. Did they see you? Peter asked. 
I don't know. We were under a shelf of rock, I reply. But I do know. There was a moment after the bird call, but the, before the hovercraft where the girl had seen us. She locked eyes with me and called out for help. But neither Gail or I had responded. You're shivering, says Peta. The wind and the story have blown all the warmth from my body. The girls scream. Had it been her last? Peta takes off his jacket and wraps it around my shoulders. We don't get inside of Peta's head, so what do we have to really pay attention to with Peta since we're not in his head? Caden? His actions. His actions. Okay, so the, the choices he makes and the things that he does. Okay? Peta takes off his jacket and wraps it around my shoulders. I start to take a step back, but then I let him, deciding for a moment to accept both his jacket and his kindness. A friend would do that, right? They were from here, he asks, and he secures a button at my neck. I nod. They'd had that capital look about them, the boy and the girl. Where do you suppose they were going, he asks. I don't know that, I say. District 12 is pretty much the end of the line. Beyond us, there's only wilderness, if you don't count the ruins of District 13 that still smolder from the toxic bombs. They show it on television occasionally just to remind us. Or why they would leave here. Hamish had called the Avoxes traitors. Against what? It could only be the capital. And they had everything here. No cause to rebel. I'd leave here, Peter blurts out. Then he looks around nervously. It was loud enough to hear above the chimes. He laughs. I'd go home right now if they let me. But you have to admit, the food's prime. He's covered again. If that's all you'd heard, it's just this, it just sounds like the words of a scared tribute, not someone contemplating the unquestionable goodness of the capital. It's getting chilly. We better go in, he says. Inside the dome, it's warm and bright. His tone is conversational. Your friend Gail? He's the one who took your sister away at the reaping? Yes, do you know him, I ask? Not really. I hear the girls talk about him a lot. I thought he was your cousin or something. You favor each other, he says. No, we're not relatable. We're not related. Peta nods. Unreadable. Did he come say goodbye to you? Yes, I say, observing him carefully. So did your father. He brought me cookies. Peter raises his eyebrows as if this is news. But after watching him lie so smoothly, I don't give this much weight. Really? Well, he likes you and your sister. I think he wishes he had a daughter instead of a house full of boys. The idea that I might ever have been discussed around the dinner table at the bakery fire just in passing in Peter's house gives me a start. It must have been when the mother was out of the room. He knew your mother when they were kids, says Peter. Another surprise, but probably true. Oh yes, she grew up in town, I say. It seems impolite to say that she never mentioned the baker except to compliment his bread. We're at my door. I give back his jacket. See you in the morning then? See you, he says, and walks off down the hall. When I open my door, the red-headed girl is collecting my unitard and boots from where I left them on the floor before my shower. I want to apologize for possibly getting her in trouble earlier, but I remember I'm not supposed to speak to her unless I'm giving her an order. Oh, sorry, I say. I was supposed to get these back to Cinna. I'm sorry, can you take them to him? She avoids my eyes, gives a small nod, and heads out the door. I'd set out to tell her I was, so <coughs> I was sorry about dinner, but I know that my apology runs much deeper that I'm ashamed I never tried to help her in the woods, that I let the capital kill the boy and mutilate her without lifting a finger, just like I was watching the games. I kick off my shoes and climb under the covers in my clothes. The shivering hasn't stopped. Perhaps the girl doesn't even remember me, but I know she does. You don't forget the face of the person who was your last hope. 
I pull the covers up over my head as if this will protect me from the red-headed girl who can't speak. But I can feel her eyes staring at me, piercing through walls and doors and bedding. I wonder if she'll enjoy watching me die. Next time I read, it's got one of my favorite scenes. Okay. I'm going to stop this.